Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Leonard Greenspoon about his new book, Olam Hazet, Olam Haba, This World and the World to Come in Jewish Belief and Practice, published by the Purdue University Press in 2017. This book, for which Professor Greenspoon served as the editor, explores Jewish notions and conceptions of the afterlife, and how, it is, and how it compares to our life on this earth, covering sources from apocryphal literature from 400 BCE to 200 CE to modern thinkers like Mendelssohn and Levinas, Olam Hazet and Olam Haba provides an interdisciplinary view of the subject and helps readers understand the diverse range of opinions Jews hold and have held about the afterlife. Leonard Greenspoon, welcome to the show. Leonard, I was wondering you, if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Okay, uh... I'm Leonard Greenspoon. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, After my undergraduate education, I spent a year in Italy, quite a few years ago, about a year in Italy, right after undergraduate school. Uh, And then I started in the graduate program at Harvard. I actually started in the classics program at Harvard, which was my undergraduate degree. And Soon I found out about this department called Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. Uh, and the, frankly, uh, although the most famous professor there was clearly Frank Moore Cross, uh, who was an icon in the field, I had actually never heard of him. It took a while. Meanwhile, the other major professor there, most famous professor, G. Ernest Wright, who was a well-known Protestant theologian and biblical archaeologist, I did get to meet him. And it happened that in the first graduate class I took uh, with, uh, with Ernest Wright, it was on the book of Joshua. And so we were talking one day and I said, oh yeah, I'm, I, um, I've got this classics background and I'm really interested in studying the Septuagint, which, about which I knew practically nothing. And he started regaling me with stories uh, of his own archaeology as it related to the book of Joshua, but also two uh, scholars uh, who he had, one of whom he had known, uh, Max, Max Margolis, uh, who uh, taught at Dropsy in Philadelphia up through the mid-30s, and then Harry Olinsky, who was, uh, although not my professor, because Harry Olinsky taught at HUC. Nonetheless, I grew very close to them. And both of them had been uh, writing on the Greek text of Joshua. And both of them had also been editors of the Jewish Publication Society Bible Translation. So I was totally fascinated by all of this and then shaped my program, as we were able to in those days, around my interest. Did a, a, when I say I did a dissertation on the Septuagint of the book of Joshua people already say, well, that seems awfully um, specific, right? But 
you know, those of us in the know would say you couldn't do a dissertation on, on the entire text of the book of Joshua, but it's not part of the book of Joshua. And then I immediately began teaching at Clemson University, which is the state university of South Carolina. And after 20 years there, I was approached by Creighton University, which is a Jesuit Catholic school in Omaha. And uh, they made what I'm going to say is the proverbial offer you can't refuse. And uh, I've been there since 1996, and I hold uh, the Klesnik Chair in Jewish Civilization, and I'm also a professor of theology and classical areas and studies. Uh, I've been very fortunate over the years. I've been able to work on and write on pretty much whatever interests me. And um, so I've always, of course, maintained an interest in and affection for, if that's appropriate to say, the Septuagint, but I've expanded it to uh, cover the, the whole range of Jewish Bible translations so that in November of last year, I published a book on Jewish Bible translations uh, for JPS, and it was the, it's really the first book ever uh, you know, covering not just a given translation, but translations from the Septuagint really up until the modern world. Uh, at the same time, I've been uh, very interested in a different kind of translation, translating the world of scholarship into what can be understood by the general public. Because as I tell people, just like any other field, we have lingo, and it's pretty difficult to penetrate. So over the years, I've, I've had a column in uh, Biblical Archaeology Review, uh, sort of a, a humor column about how the Bible is used in contemporary work. And then uh, a lot of my effort to get down to the volume that uh, Matthew and I will be talking about most, a lot of my effort has gone into an annual symposium. Uh, The annual symposium uh, this fall will be in its 33rd year. Uh, Actually, it would have been in its 33rd year last fall, but we had to cancel, understandably. And um, it's... Of course, I'm not an, an unbiased observer, but it, it's, it's a unique opportunity. We bring together uh, about 15 scholars from all over the world who submit um, uh, abstracts on a particular topic. And the topic is different every year. And therefore, the people who the scholars who come in are different every year. Um, the one that we're just getting ready to publish is on Jews and gender. Uh We've done everything from food in Judaism, women in Judaism, millennialism in Judaism, uh, you name it, we've covered it. So uh, what makes it uh, um, special, if I, I don't want to keep saying unique, is that the presenters, their presentations in oral form uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, um, need to be addressed to not just each other, there's nothing wrong with talking to each other, but to a broad general public. And so when we, we have two days of presentations, we're able to tr- attract anywhere from 75 to 150 people from the Jewish community, uh, from the Creighton community. And it's, it's, it's a great time for people to come together. And um, I, I try each year when I'm, editing the volume in my introduction, if I can, because I can be as informal as I like, to say, well, how did we come up with this topic? And I, I, the, if, if you don't mind, it, it's a really, it's an anecdote. It'll take a minute. Is it okay just to talk about how we came up with this volume? Is that be okay? Oh, so um, some number of this is a symposium from 2015 and that we published in 2017 as matthew pointed out yeah. sometime sometime around definitely at least 2012 or 13 sure. yeah some sometime earlier than that yes sometime earlier than that uh we were at uh, a conservative synagogue bethel in omaha that we were members of and uh our younger daughter who was then a, a teenager uh, and I, you know, memory is fallible, but it's also wonderful. So s- somehow or another, <laughs> uh, they all, she and her friends all sort of rushed up to me 
right after the rabbi had given a sermon. And I said, well, what's going on here? And so my, my daughter just said, okay, we don't believe in hell, do we? The rabbi talked about hell. And um, the first thing I said, which is probably not very helpful for my daughter, but is nonetheless a way I would answer any question of this sort. It depends on which Jews you're talking about at which time, and there are all kinds of contingencies. That's not really the answer she wanted, but it's the kind of answer she, she would expect it of me by then uh, at that point in her life and, and, and even today. So um, that got me to thinking, got me to thinking that, yes, when I grew up, I grew up in a, a, also a conservative synagogue named Bethel, this one in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and uh, I didn't know it at the time or appreciate the, the, uh, the eruditeness, the educational level of a rabbi who was Jacob Milgram, who then became a world-class scholar based in Berkeley on biblical material, especially related to the priestly world. I didn't know that that our rabbi was many notches above others. But nonetheless, you know, I would try to listen to his sermons every week and try to participate in activities for USY. And when I thought about it, what did we talk about in terms of Jews or Judaism? Uh, that was exactly what you may read of conservative Judaism uh, during the 50s and 60s. We talked about Israel and the Holocaust uh, and the Holocaust. But we, we had never had uh, any discussion about beliefs in the afterlife. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm a, a product of, uh, we, you can call it, or we might call it Sunday school, in our day, it was Sunday and twice during the week, and we had a good program. Uh, and as much as I try to, you know, go through my memory, I don't remember we ever discussed topics like this. So, I mean, by that time, I had obviously gone to graduate school and uh, written and researched and gone to conferences. So, I, you know, I had some idea of what was going on. But it led me to think, why don't we have a symposium on this topic? And uh, we're, um, I would say, I'm especially fortunate in that, you know, I, along with my colleagues at Creighton, also University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and also University of Nebraska-Omaha, now we have three academic sponsors uh, of the three major academic institutions of higher education in Nebraska. And pretty much we come up with an idea, and I came up with this idea. And what I wanted uh, especially, and exactly as Matthew described it, because uh, we have the first part of the title, Olom Hazev Ve'olam Haba, This World and the World to Come in Jewish Belief and, and Practice. So ideally... Um, Although it doesn't happen in every essay, you can never get complete consistency in any collection. Nonetheless, uh, overall, the goal was to talk about beliefs among Jews uh, about the afterlife in different time periods, uh, different historical periods, and then where possible to see how those beliefs um, guided people in living their lives on earth. So um, at its best, that's what this volume does. The subtitle of the volume is This World and the World to Come in Jewish Belief and Practice. We can pick apart every word, but for the sake of time, I just want to focus now on the word Jewish. So in the context of this volume, what does this term mean? What is Jewish here? Um, it's an expansive term uh, which is to say that um, when, well, I need to back up just a little bit. In, in terms of each, I talked a little bit about each uh, symposium topic, and we put a call for papers out, and then we get responses. And, and um, then our committee of my colleagues at, at Creighton, again, University of Nebraska-Lincoln, University of Nebraska-Omaha, excuse me, look at these. And um, the, the definition of what is Jewish is pretty much 
whatever the uh, accepted abstracts and presentations take it to mean. So, for example, it's certainly not simply rabbinic Ju- Judaism. Uh, it, it's 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 no particular criteria other than the fact that the people who have responded to the call for papers on a given topic, in this case, Jewish beliefs in the world to come, um, have defined it in that way. Uh, so, so here, for example, I could just give you um, two two quick exa- I could just give you two quick notices. Uh, one of the articles in in the volume, but, and I tend to uh, put the articles in the volume in chronological order. So uh, one of the first articles in the volume uh, speaks of uh, this world and the world to come in the apocrypha. Actually, the the author has. In, in parentheses, so-called apocrypha. Apocrypha is clearly not a Jewish designation, uh, but it happens that the books that are in the apocrypha, which would include uh, First and Second Maccabees, Judith, uh, Tobit, uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, and several other uh, uh, works of literature, they were originally composed in pre-Christian centuries BCE by Jews for Jews, uh, it, so that in this case, I think this is a, a good example. In this case, uh, in a I don't know, in, in somebody's mind, uh, a, a book of the Apocrypha is part of the Catholic Deutero uh, canon of, of the Old Testament. Oh, it's studied also by Protestants, but it's not Jewish. So within our context, it fully qualifies as Jewish. Uh, because of its origins. Uh, and, and then one other quick example, near and dear to my heart, the Septuagint. Uh, the Septuagint, which began its origins in about 275, give or take, BCE, in, in Egypt under the second Ptolemy, uh, was produced by Jews for, for Jews. But as the centuries passed, and the Septuagint was adopted by uh, early Christians as their Old Testament. Uh, the Jewish connection between the Sept- between the connection between Judaism and the Septuagint uh, is, is almost lost. Uh, and consequently, while the second translation chronologically, the Targums into Aramaic, becomes part of a traditional Jewish education, the Septuagint. Alas, in spite of my best efforts, it's not. But nonetheless, it's it's got a place here as well. Uh, so uh, it's it's really, I guess you might say, it's pragmatic, uh, and it's certainly not ideological. Okay, that's that's great. I appreciate that. Um, one of the other things that um, that I was thinking about when I was reading the book is is different sorts of continuities and discontinuities. So continuities between this world and the next. So how they're very similar in some degrees and how certain practices and certain things that one does can in fact bring one to the world to come, so to speak, such as, as Christine Hayes mentions in, in her essay. And um, and this sort of nexus between this world and the world to come, something which is very interesting. And we, we see, as the, as the authors note, from ancient sources, from modern thinkers. But I'm curious if you want to elaborate, and of course this goes across all sorts of essays, what are the discontinuities? I mean, what is the difference? What are some differences between this world and the next, according to the essays, according to, to different thinkers, which are, are brought therein? I'm glad you asked that, since you're going to, you put your finger on what we hope is the dis- distinctive feature of this volume. Uh, let me take uh, what I might call a parade example um, of exactly this matter of discontinuities that you mentioned. Uh, according to many rabbinic sources, of course, we don't expect unanimity. Uh, in fact, I think we relish the give and take of disagreement. But according to many Jewish sources, uh, in the world to come, uh, those who make it into the world to come will feast forever on a banquet. And the article, the author of one of the articles on this as I would call, describes it as it would put Las Vegas to shame. Uh, and what's pretty am- am- amazing about that, okay, so already you may have a conception, 
in the, in the afterlife, however we define it, you don't eat and drink. That's something you would need to do. And indeed, there are sources which say that. But these other sources, uh, it's not just that you will eat essentially forever and drink copiously, but what will you eat? And uh, what you'll eat, according to many of these sources, is nothing short of hazarai. Absolutely everything that's unkosher in this world. And again, my favorite examples there um, are the inclusion on the menu of Leviathan, Behemoth, and which are both biblical creatures of some sort. Uh, Leviathan is a, a, a water creature, an aquatic creature of some sort, uh, prominently mentioned in the book of Job, along with Behemoth, is, is a, um, a land creature of some sort. Uh, some people would identify either one or both of those with dinosaurs, but that will get us off the top. They're clearly not kosher. And then there's a, a, a ziz, uh, which is a bird creature. Again, none of these, it's not surprising, none of these accord with uh, rabbinic understandings of what you should eat. So why is it then that the, the platter, the platters on the banquets for afterlife uh, again, I, I don't have any better word than it's, it's Chazerai. And, and so that, that's interesting, J- just that. Because I, I mean, I've been teaching Jewish studies, Jewish civilization for decades, but I'm not a, a, a specialist in the rabbinic period or dietary law. So this was already interesting to me. But what's more interesting is exactly what you, again, what you put your finger on, Matthew, According to those who speculated in this way, the, the price, as it were, of admission into the afterlife, the price of getting your food ticket to eat all this was that you strictly kept all of the dietary regulations as formulated by the rabbis in this world. And uh, it sounds, in a sense, counterintuitive uh, but then again, as the author of that particular article, which is really one of my favorites, points out, uh, it's in this concept, you, uh, you, you don't refrain from eating uh, non-kosher food because there's something disgusting about it. The fact is, according to them, it's very tempting, and you resist that temptation. And the reward for resisting that temptation or what we might call delayed gratification, is that in the world to come, you'll be eating constantly all of this stuff. Uh, There's a similar um, uh, development that's more with foods, with wines as well. And uh, again, what I'm telling you is from what I gleaned from the articles, uh, I don't claim any particular expertise. Nonetheless, um, there's an ambiguous attitude among the rabbis in terms of, of, of drinking alcoholic beverages. Clearly, drinking wine is part of the celebration of many, many events and many, many holidays. But there's always the concern about drinking too much. Well, wouldn't you know it? Uh, if you are, in fact, uh, abstemious, but we don't, if you're, in fact, you know, um, sober, in your drinking habits in this world, in the world to come, you get to drink forever and you never get a hangover and you never drink too much. Um, and uh, again, it appears as if, you know, all right, uh, yeah, the, those who aren't going to make it into the world to come, whether we understand that as all non-Jews, some non-Jews and some Jews, or whatever we understand it, those who aren't going to make it, they just grab all that stuff now. Uh, The natural consequence, according to this way of thinking, is, uh, well, actually, the natural they're not going to be in the world to come, uh, which leads us to another question, namely uh, whether um, there's a belief in revivification or resurrection for reward and punishment or 
only those who are good get rewarded, no matter that, and we can certainly discuss that a bit if we want to, but no matter what, in, no matter what is in this view, um, the rabbinic, the Torah, true Jew, as understood by the traditional rabbis, uh, through their maintenance of certain practices such that are distinctive, such as kashrut, um, merit being welcomed into the world to come. And part of that welcome is that everything, they re- all the temptations they resisted, they will now uh, be able to partake in. I've, I've elaborated a bit, but to me, this is, uh, it's, it's, mag- it's a magnificent example. Um, and uh, again, I, well, not again, but I, uh, one of our, we have two sons-in-law, we have two married daughters, and one of them had a traditional yeshiva background, actually in Chicago, and we were talking about this, and I said, well, did, did was it ever said to you, oh, you know, don't stray from kashrut because so doing uh, will impede, if not make it possible, uh, your entry into the world to come. And he says, yeah, I mean, there, it wasn't like necessarily exactly that way, but that exactly that reasoning um, he, he was familiar with. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off very nice and um i want i want to go back a bit um to really the impetus of the volume um as you mentioned a really interesting story in terms of your daughter and her friends and i think that in my own experience and um from what i've heard from people there is this notion and as we're discussing really mistaken notion that judaism doesn't really have a notion of the world to come doesn't emphasize the world to come there's something there's something there um, that people think about, and, and, and I think it's pretty prolific from, from my own understanding. Um, I think part of that could certainly be in terms of the Pentateuch, um, one of the foundational texts of Judaism, not having, let's say, explicit references to this. But I wonder, is, is that the main reason? Is, are there other reasons? What's going on here in terms of why there is this misconception? This misconception. Yes, yes. yes. Um, that's something that I... Had, had observed as well. And so when my daughter came to me with this comment and, you know, it's going to be my daughter, she's going to be brilliant, of course. And she and her friends are also brilliant. And they asked me this question. I said, whoa, it means that that's something we've never discussed. So one way of looking at it, certainly in certain contexts, and I think this may be true in certainly part of the American Jewish context, is the afterlife is very, very important for or thinking about the afterlife, teaching about the afterlife, meditating on the afterlife, even obsessing over the afterlife is part of a lot of Christian belief. And we need to differentiate ourselves from such a, such a view since it's, it's very clearly uh, part of the teaching. Um, isn't it's it's an important teaching in um, among evangelical Christians. It certainly it has its major role in among Roman Catholics and others. Uh, now, what's ironic about that, of course, is that uh, among those individuals and communities 
where an explicit reference to the world to come developed, uh, at some point, these were Jews who ultimately led to the founding of Christianity. That is, the, the, the belief in an afterlife is not a Christian invention. It's not a Christian, uh, it, it may or may not be a Christian obsession, but it's certainly not a Christian uh, innovation. It was something that, according to the best evidence we have, most of the Jews in the first century um, adhered to. So we're told by the first century Jewish historian Josephus uh, that the Pharisees had a belief in the world to come, and the Pharisees were obviously an influential uh, group of Jews, but that the Sadducees, who came out of the priesthood from Jerusalem, did not. Uh, the community of the Dead Sea Scrolls, if we identify them with Essenes, did have a belief in the afterlife, did demonstrate a belief in the afterlife. Uh, so then we could say, pushing back just as, as, I think I'm going backwards, that's fine though, to exactly what you said. Within the Torah, uh, and I like the way you phrased it, there is no explicit belief in the afterlife. That doesn't mean that the rabbis didn't find it there, and I'm not going into rabbinic exegesis now, but there's, there's, there's no clear statement of, of a belief in the afterlife. Uh, in the, the major part of the Hebrew Bible for Jews, um, the first and only time, actually, that there is a clear statement of belief in the afterlife with reward and punishment comes from chapter 12 of Daniel. Uh, so by consensus, that comes from around the time of the Maccabean uh, revolt that we commemorate each year with Hanukkah. So we're down to uh, around the year 200, 150 second centuries, 150 BCE. All right, so, uh, and we find in, for example, the books of the Maccabees, which, is, which ironically tell the story of Hanukkah, but they were not, uh, they did not become part of the rabbinic canon of the Bible. That itself is another story. Uh, and they, they form a prominent part, or at least sort of prominent part, um, in the Catholic um, canon of the Old Testament, but Catholics don't, uh, don't observe Hanukkah. Uh, so um, the question is... Um, Okay, so the general consensus, that, as I hear it over the years, is, oh, the, uh, the biblical writers did not have a belief in the afterlife. Uh, and I'm not, entirely, um, I'm not entirely comfortable with that. Uh, uh, clearly, they didn't express, certainly the, uh, almost... Without exception, the author of the book of Daniel, there are a couple of passages in, in Isaiah and a few other ones which certainly are compatible with the belief in the afterlife. The authors of the Bible, of the Hebrew Bible, did not express the belief in the afterlife. Uh, that's not the, and that's what most people say. And then they say, uh, they being you know, the wide range of scholars, that's, they didn't believe in the afterlife. I don't know if that's necessarily true. Uh, that's all kinds of beliefs we may have that we never express. But let's face it, um, if you look at some of the classic illustrations of this idea that there wasn't any belief in the afterlife, in, in the Bible, we look at the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land. Now, granted, there are plenty of Christian biblical interpreters who say that land actually means, of course, the world to come, the land of, of Jesus believes in the world to come. But that's not what we would say is the Peshat. The plain meaning of the text is your reward for honoring your parents comes with a, a long, uh, uh, success-filled, however we want to look at it, life in the land, right here, Eretz Yisrael. Um, so um, if I just go ahead and uh, the next, I'll give you one more speculation simply because we can't prove it. But I certainly agree with, again, most of my colleagues 
that something happened at the time of the Maccabees. Uh, again, some of some of my colleagues, speaking broadly, uh, believe that this was the time when Jews developed a belief in the afterlife. I, I don't know that because they again they may have had it, just not written it down. But this is certainly the first time that we get records of Jews believing in the afterlife. And part of that coming up from Daniel is reward and punishment. So what was it that led Jews to articulate this view? And here again, I I follow what I think is a sensible consensus. Uh, Up until the time of the Maccabees and uh, their opposition to the um, Macedonian monarchs who were ruling in, um, in Antioch and Damascus as uh, the Antiochus, Antiochus IV and the Seleucid Empire. Up until that time, Jews as a community had faced opposition. They'd come together, and most of the time they were able to overcome the opposition. Sometimes they didn't, but it was as a community. So what we find that's uh, remarkable, no matter how many times you read it, no matter how you look at it, is that Antiochus IV decided he was going to, it's one of my favorite words, extirpate, he was going to wipe out Judaism. It, what about, it, not, it wasn't the goal to kill Jews, they could stay alive, but they can't be Jewish anymore. And so we're told in the book of Maccabees, what does he do? He outlaws circumcision. He outlaws uh, reading the Torah. He outlaws uh, keeping the dietary laws. Um, so the very specific reg- regulations that he outlaws. How does he know about this? They don't have a God book to uh, ethnographic discuss uh, uh, views on other people. So it's it, it, it. I think this is totally correct. That what happened was that there were Jews of. Uh, uh, among the Jews who were living in Jerusalem at this time period, around 160, 150, 140 BCE, were those who decided that keeping the distinctive features of Judaism was not the way to go anymore. The Hellenistic world, with all of its philosophy, with all of its architecture, with all of its literature, that's where the future lay. And so they... I think we, excuse me, we used to call them the fifth columnists. They readily and, um, you know, without duress, joined together with the forces of Antiochus IV and said, okay, we really do need to end all these distinctive features of Judaism. And so let's build a gymnasium in Jerusalem, which they did. And let's get rid of all of the customs that are distinctly Jewish so that those who were Jewish. They will live, but they will now live as Hellenes, as Greeks. And what happened uh, in the early years of that conflict, and this is part of the story most of us learn about Hanukkah, in the early years of the conflict, those people who uh, rebelled against what we might call authentic traditional Judaism, they were getting all the rewards. They They were getting big villas. They were getting the slaves. They were getting... Everything and the Jews epitomized in Judah and his brothers and his family, they were getting massacred. Uh, ultimately, of course, the story has a, a good ending, but we've got to be in, we're in the middle of the story. I think we're in the middle of the story in the book of Daniel. And at this point, it became imperative for somebody, uh, however we look at them, to articulate clearly the view that punishment in this world. A reward in this world is only temporary. It's not ultimate. What ultimately matters is reward and punishment in the world to come. And this is where it was first articulated. Uh, it was certainly, as again, I, I mentioned a minute ago, not to repeat myself, it was certainly a widespread view uh, at the time of Jesus. It's certainly discussed uh, among the rabbis. Um, and you mentioned one of the essays in our volume from our keynote speaker, Christine Hayes from Yale University. Uh, but I, it, it just among the rank and file Jews, especially today, um, outside of some traditional communities, 
it's not something we look at. And uh, I think one of the reasons is because it's become so much of a preoccupation among Christians. Uh, And whether that's the main motivating factor, just as you said before, it's also the case that when we go to the Torah, which after all we read on an annual cycle, there's nothing there which shouts out belief in the afterlife. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that, I think we see that in other cases as well in terms of things which were very Jewish in origin, such as things such as the love of God and um, the grace of God, compassion of God, all these things. I think, at least in some circles, there's reticence to speak about these things because they have become very Christian. But as you're pointing out, many of these things, if not all of them, really have their sources in Judaism. So there's this tension between the original source to some degree and then how they've been appropriated and, and changed and adopted by other communities. I'd, I'd love yeah. to, to, to just shift a little bit and just to focus on, on your essay. So you have an essay there. Um, as we discussed, you, you have a focus on the Septuagint and your essay is entitled The Afterlife in the Septuagint. And so there you focus, as the title implies, on the afterlife in, in, in the Septuagint. Um, but we'd love to hear a, a bit more in terms of, of what you discussed there, you know, is there a view? Is there one particular view of the afterlife in the Septuagint? How do you how do you go about speaking about that topic in the essay? Uh, I, you know, I, I guess Matthew, if I were going to self reflect for a minute, I guess I'm sort of a killjoy because again, my daughter comes to me and says, "Do Jews believe in in hell?" And I, I don't say yes or no. I, I say it depends. Okay, so only a small sliver of Jewish history or Jewish literature or Jewish intellectual life is contained in the Septuagint. Uh, but it, it's, it's an important document from the third, second, first centuries uh, BCE in the major met- metropolis of the era, which was Alexandria. Um, and there's, there's no doubt uh, that this translation in one form or another, was very influential centuries among Jews in the Galut exile, but it was also known by and uh, influenced Jews who were living in, um, in the land of Israel as well. So uh, in my killjoy way of looking, I'm sorry, first of all, uh, we have to acknowledge that what we call the Septuagint, because you can... Um, you could go, for example, uh, what actually recommended, if you went to the, the New English Translation of the Septuagint, uh, which uh, an organization I'm, a, I'm part of, we put together this New English Translation of the Septuagint. It's volume after volume. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the books of the Hebrew Bible, all the books of the Apocrypha, and then some books uh, such as Third uh, and Fourth Maccabees, Who's heard of them? Well, only only those of us in the know, I guess. And it's all there laid out like a book. But this is misleading in the same way that we look at the Torah scroll or we look at, uh, at a Sefer Torah, we look at a Sefer Torah here being the Tanakh. And we recognize um, pretty much we being uh, obviously not everybody, but certainly within the scholarly consensus that the Hebrew Bible is made up of documents coming from different time periods, different genres, uh, and that if you want to, you can certainly ask the question, as people say, does the Bible approve of X? Is Y according to the Bible? But those are always um, unsophisticated questions and don't really get uh, necessarily a very good answer. So in this case, I took a couple of, uh, of the major arguments that were meant to show that the Septuagint, at least as we have it, uh, their writers were interested, more interested in the world to come than the authors of the texts that they were translating, that is the biblical authors. Okay, and uh, there was one one particular German scholar, Joachim Schopper, who's written about this, but it, it was a fairly, it was fairly commonplace among uh, Septuagint students uh, in the pre World War II period. I mean, let's face it; they're not a zillion Septuagint scholars, but nonetheless, that yeah, the writers of the, the Septuagint writers 
uh, took the passages they were translating that looked like our Hebrew Bible, and they changed some of them so that it would be more of an emphasis on the world to come because we know incontrovertibly that authors in a similar time, but these are authors, not translators, like the author of First Maccabees, the author of Second Maccabees, they, they both present and exemplify a deep belief in the afterlife and reward and punishment. We get our first examples of martyrdom there. Uh, so wouldn't it make sense that the Septuagint translators were doing the same thing? And so killjoy that I am, we go through the passages and we discover that um, the only way to read these Greek texts, like uh, the Greek text of the book of Job, to read them as talking about the afterlife in some extensive way, is if you already believe in the, in the afterlife and you look at these passages with that in mind, and then you find it because, well, oh, that's what you were looking for. Um, which, by the way, of course, is not unusual in the world of biblical interpretation. Um, so that if we want to know, if you want to know what uh, Jews in the second century BCE, this is late second temple period, believed about the afterlife, uh, alas, the Septuagint is not, not the place to go. Uh, as, as long as we, uh, I mean, if we're looking for uh, dynamic evidence that Jew, prominent Jews, I mean, we don't know anything about every you know, day-to-day Jew, but prominent Jews in this time period believed in the afterlife. It's absolutely true. I mean, I mean the evidence is there all over the place, but it's not in the Septuagint. Uh, sort of a, uh, you know, I thought of, I'm not apologetic, I guess, but it, you know, if you have to just look at my article a little bit, I get to, you know, I get to the end of it and say, well, I'm sorry, uh, th- there's really nothing in the Septuagint which is remarkably, uh, uh, remarkably relevant to people's beliefs in the afterlife. Uh, and um, I said, well, then why did you write about it? Well, I can't really write about it until you've studied it, of course. So um, that, and I did that um, because just like most uh, academicians or most scholars, um, you see a topic, in this case, well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm the organizer of the symposium, but, you know, I see a topic, this world and the world to come in the Jewish tradition. Believe, what do I know? Oh, yeah, I know the Septuagint. So I'm over the Septuagint. And then the whole volume, what makes the volume, I think, attractive is that we have uh, 15 scholars from all over the world approaching this topic from their own strength and from their own interests. And um, so I would never say at the end of the volume, we now have a comprehensive view uh, uh, but we have these wonderful articles. Uh, okay, again, I'm I'm not objective, but I think yes, the, these wonderful articles uh, with s- such stories as the uh, the the banquet with Behemoth and Leviathan uh, in the afterlife, and try and then relating that to significant rabbinic teaching and practice. I think that that really resonates, and I think that it gets to the core of, of the of the title because I think that, that if we look at Olam Hazad, this world, and Olam Haba, the next world, and we think about Jewish belief, Jewish practice, I think all these things are really attempts to try to you know whether it's for the rabbis or for the authors of the apocryphal literature or Levinas or Mendelssohn, all, all these different scholars are really trying to grapple with Judaism, grapple with the world, and trying to think about how that would apply and, and think about how they could conceive of, of this world, how they conceive of the next world. And it's a it's really a very human experience and human endeavor. And I think that, that all these different varieties and all these different forms, which are described in, in these essays, try to capture that. And there's, there's no one answer. I mean, none of the authors of the essays, none of the people they describe have seen the afterlife, but yet they're trying to come to terms with what it could mean. It's, I think that, that the humanity of it really spoke to me. I, th- I think that this is a great place to end in terms of the, the bulk of the interview, in terms of the, of the essays. Really a lot more to speak about, a lot more to think about in terms of 
issues of martyrdom in, in, in the rabbis, thinking about contemporary um, plays like Anski's The Dibbuk, really, really a lot more, probably could go on for many more hours, but I think we'll, we'll, we'll save this for, for another time. I think that if we want to end here, I'd really just love to ask you the traditional new books question. So we've really taken up a lot of your time, and I want to know, what are you working on next? Okay, I have two projects I'm working on. One is ongoing, and that is the uh, uh, Josh, the Joshua, a commentary on the book of Joshua from the Jewish Publication Society. Uh, and um, I, I'm fairly certain that most people uh, who are uh, listening to us uh, are familiar with the JPS uh, Torah commentary. Uh, there's been a commentary on the Bigelot now. Um, uh, it's a series that's sort of bogged down, if you will. Uh, so I, I started this volume probably four years ago, and I was working along, and then I, then I got really uh, uh, ignited, if, it, if I can say it that way, by the Bible translation volume. So I'm coming back to this, and the, the second uh, um, work that I'm, a big work that I'm uh, get, preparing for is a volume for Oxford University Press. And, I, and so it, for it, it, from my perspective, Oxford University Press is the premier uh, publisher in areas that I'm interested in. So, so it's, it's a big, uh, sort of a big statement, nonetheless. Um, and they have a, they, Oxford University Press, all sorts of stuff. They have a huge uh, catalog of books there. They published or are publishing. So they have a series called The Cabinet of Curiosities, uh, which it, itself is a kind of, of literary, um, genre from an earlier era. Anyway, uh, someone has gone through and did a, a volume on Roman curiosities, Greek curiosities, Byzantine curiosities, and the press asked me to do one on biblical curiosities. So basically, it, it's a way of bringing together two things that I really like to bring together, that is entertaining and edifying. So uh, and again, I'm at an early stage in this. But so, for example, uh, you, you find biblical pronouncements about sex or about um, foreigners. And, and beyond just the, the biblical statements, uh, rabbinic and Jewish commentary. Um, so these are, the, these are the two things I'm working on. Very nice. Well, look forward to reading them. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you, Matthew. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus